Section 11 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott. From 1650 to 1672, Part 1. Having destroyed the Hurons, who were under French protection, it is not surprising that the Iroquois now set themselves to destroy the French. From Montreal to Tadoussac, the St. Lawrence swarmed with war canoes. No sooner had the river ice broken up and the birds begun winging north than the Iroquois flocked down the current of the Richelieu across Lake St. Peter to Three Rivers, down the St. Lawrence to Quebec, up the St. Lawrence to Montreal, and the snows of midwinter afforded no truce to the raids, for the Iroquois cached their canoes in the forest and roamed the woods on snowshoes. Settlers fled terrified from their farms to the towns. Farmers dared not work in their fields without a sentry standing guard. Montreal became a prison. Three rivers lay blockaded, and at Quebec the war canoes passed defiantly below the cannon of Cape Diamond, paddles beating defiance against the gunnels, or prows flaunting the scalps of victims within cannon fire of Castle St. Louis. Rich and poor, priests and parishers, governors and habitants, all alike trembled before the lurking treachery. Father Jogues had been captured on his way from the Huron mission. Pierre Poncet was likewise captured at Quebec and carried to the tortures of the Mohawk towns, and a nephew of the governor of Quebec was a few years later attacked while hunting near Lake Champlain. The outraged people of New France realized that fear was only increasing the boldness of the Iroquois. A Mohawk chief fell into their hands. By way of warning, they bound him to a stake and burned him to death. The Indian revenge fell swift and sure. In 1653, the governor of Three Rivers and twelve leading citizens were murdered a short distance from the fort gates. One night in May of 1652, a tall, slim, swarthy lad, about sixteen years of age, was seen winding his way home to Three Rivers from a day's shooting in the marshes. He had set out at day-dawn with some friends, but fear of the Iroquois had driven his comrades back. Now at nightfall, within the sight of Three Rivers, when the sunset glittered from the chapel spire, he unslung his bag of game and sat down to reload his musket. Then he noticed that his pistols in his belt had been water-soaked from the day's waiting, and he reloaded them, too. Anyone who is used to life in the open knows how at sundown wild birds foregather for a last conclave. Ducks were winging in myriads and settling on the lake with noisy flacker. Unable to resist the temptation of one last shot, the boy was gliding noiselessly forward through the rushes, when suddenly he stopped as if rooted to the ground, with hands thrown up and eyes bulging from his head. At his feet lay the corpses of his mourning comrades. 
scalped, stripped, hacked almost piecemeal. Then the instinct of the hunted thing, of flight, of self-protection, eclipsed momentary terror, and the boy was ducking into the rushes to hide, when, with a crash of musketry from the woods, the Iroquois were upon him. When he regained consciousness, he was pegged out on the sand amid a flotilla of beach canoes, where Iroquois warriors were having an evening meal. So began the captivity, the love of the wilds, the wild wanderings of one of the most intrepid explorers in New France, Pierre Esprit Radisson. His youth and the fact that he would make a good warrior were in his favor. When he was carried back to the Mohawk town and with other prisoners, compelled to run the gauntlet between two lines of tormentors, Radisson ran so fast and dodged so dexterously that he was not once hit. The feat was greeted with shrieks of delight from the Iroquois, and the high-spirited boy was given in adoption to a captive Huron woman. Things would have gone well had he not bungled an attempt to escape. But one night, while in camp with three Iroquois hunters, an Algonquin captive entered. While the Iroquois slept with guns stacked against the tree, the sleepless Algonquin captive rose noiselessly where he lay by the fire, seized the Mohawk warrior's guns, threw one tomahawk across to Radisson, and with the other brained two of the sleepers. The French boy aimed a blow at the third sleeper, and the two captives escaped, but they might have saved themselves the trouble. They were pursued and overtaken on Lake St. Peter, within sight of three rivers. This time Radisson had to endure all the diables of Mohawk torture. For two days he was kept bound to the torture stake. The nails were torn from his fingers. The flesh burnt from the soles of his feet. A hundred other barbarous freaks of impish Indian children reeked on the French boy. Arrows with flaming points were shot at his naked body. His mutilated finger ends were ground between stones or thrust into the smoking bowl of a pipe full of coals or bitten by fiendish youngsters being trained up the way a Mohawk warrior should go. Radisson's youth, his courage, his very daredevil rashness, together with presents of wampum belts from his Indian parents, served his life for a second time, and a year of wild wanderings with Mohawk warriors finally brought him to Albany on the Hudson, where the Dutch would have ransomed him, as they had ransomed the two Jesuits, Georges and Poncet. But the boy disliked to break faith a second time with those loyal Indian friends. Still, the glimpse of white man's life caused a terrible upheaval of revulsion from the barbitites, the filth, the vice of the Mohawk camp. He could endure Indian life no longer. One morning in the fall of 1653, he stole out from the Mohawk lodges while the mist of the day dawn still shadowed the forest and broke at a run down the trail of the Mohawk Valley for Albany. All day he ran, pursued by the phantom fright of his own imagination, fancying everything that crunched beneath his 
moccasin tread some mohawk warrior seeing in the branches that reeled as he passed the arms of pursuers stretched out to stop him on and on and on he ran pausing neither to eat nor rest here dashing into the bed of a stream and running along the pebbled bottom to throw pursuers off the trail there breaking through a thicket of brushwood away from the trail only to come back to it breathless farther along when some alarm of the wind in the trees or deer on the move had proved false only muscles of iron strength lithe as elastic could have endured the strain nightfall at last came hiding him from pursuers but still he sped on at a run following the trail by the light of the stars and the rush of the river by sunrise of the second day he was staggering for the rocks were slippery with frost and his moccasins worn to tatters it was four in the afternoon before he reached the first outlying cabin of the dutch settlers for three days he lay hidden in albany behind sacks of wheat in a thin boarded attic through the cracks of which he could see the mohawks searching everywhere the jesuit ponset gave him passage money to take ship to europe by way of new york new york was then a village of a few hundred houses thatch roof with stone fort stone church stone barracks central park was a rocky wilderness what is now wall street was the stamping ground of pigs and goats january of sixteen fifty four radisson reached europe no longer a boy but a man inured to danger and hardships and daring though not yet eighteen when radisson came back to three rivers in may he found changes had taken place in new fronts among the men murdered with the governor of three rivers by the mohawks the preceding year had been his sister's husband and the widow had married one medard short de gracier who had served in the huron country as lay helper with the martyred jesuits also a truce had been patched up between the iroquois and the french the iroquois were warring against the eries and wanted arms from the french a still more treacherous motive underlay the iroquois peace they wanted a french settlement in their country as a guarantee of non-intervention when they continued to raid the refugee hurons such duplicity was unsuspected by new france the jesuits looked upon the peace as designed by providence to enable them to establish missions among the iroquois father lemoy went from village to village preaching the gospel and receiving belts of wampum as tokens of peace one belt containing as many as seven thousand beads when one onaondaga asked for a french colony lazon the french governor readily consented if the jesuits would pay the cost estimated at about ten thousand dollars and in sixteen fifty six major dupuy had left fifty frenchmen and four jesuits up the st lawrence in longboats through the wilderness to a little hill on lake onaondaga where a palisaded fort was built and the lilies of france embroidered on a white silk flag by the ursuline nuns flung from the breeze above the iroquois land the colony was hardly established before three hundred mohawks fell on the hurons encamped under shelter of quebec 
butchered without mercy and departed with shots that echoed below the guns at cape diamond scalps waving from the prow of each iroquois canoe quebec was thunderstruck numb with fright the french dared not retaliate or the iroquois would fall on the colony at onaondaga perhaps people who keep their vision too constantly fixed on heaven lose sight of the practical duties of earth but when eighty onaondagas came again in sixteen fifty seven inviting a hundred hurons to join the iroquois confederacy the jesuits again suspected no treachery in the invitation but saw only a providential opportunity to spread one hundred huron converts among the iroquois pagans father regano who led the poor refugees down from the christian islands on jordan bay now with another priest offered to accompany the hurons to the iroquois nation an interpreter was needed young radisson now twenty-one years of age offered to go as lay helper and the party of two hundred and twenty french eighty iroquois one hundred hurons departed from the gates of montreal july twenty sixth hardly were they beyond recall before scouts brought word that twelve hundred iroquois had gone on the warpath against canada and three frenchmen of montreal had been scalped at last the governor of quebec bestirred himself he caused twelve iroquois to be seized and held as hostages for the safety of the french the onondagas had set out from montreal carrying the frenchmen's baggage beyond the first portage they flung the packs on the ground hurried the hurons into canoes so that no two hurons were in one boat and paddled over the water with loud laughter leaving the french in the lurch father regineau and radisson quickly read the ominous signs telling the other french to gather up the baggage they armed themselves and paddled in swift pursuit that night Ragano's party and the Onondagas camped together. Nothing was said or done to evince treachery. Friends and enemies, Onondaga and Hurons and white men, paddled and camped together for another week. But when, on August 3rd, four Huron warriors and two women forcibly seized a canoe and headed back for Montreal, the Onondagas would delay no longer that afternoon as the indians paddled inshore to camp on one of the thousand islands some onondaga braves rushed into the woods as if to hunt as the canoes grated the pebbled shore a secret signal was given the huron men with their eyes bent on the beach intent on landing never knew that they had been struck onondaga hatchets clubs spears were plied from the waterside and from the hunters ambushed on shore crashed musketry that mowed down those who would have fled to the woods by night-time only a few huron women and the french had survived the massacre such was the baptism of blood that inaugurated the french colony at onondaga luckily the fort built on the crest of the hill above lake onondaga was large enough to house stock and provisions outside the palisades there daily gathered more iroquois warriors who no longer dissembled a hunger for jesuits preaching among the warriors were radisson's old friends of the mohawks and his foster father confessed to him frankly that the confederacy 
were only delaying the massacre of the French till they could somehow obtain the freedom of the twelve Iroquois hostages held at Quebec. Daily more warriors gathered, nightly the war drum pounded. Week after week the beleaguered and imprisoned French heard their stealthy enemy closing nearer and nearer on them, and the painted foliage of autumn frosts gave place to the leafless trees and the drifting snows of midwinter. The French were hemmed in completely as if on a desert isle, and no help could come from Quebec, where New France was literally under Iroquois siege. The question was, what to do? Messengers had been secretly sent to Quebec, but the Mohawks had caught the scouts bringing back answers, and there was no safe escape from the colony through ambushed woods in midwinter. The Iroquois could afford to bid their time for victims who could not escape. All winter the whites secretly built boats in the lofts of the fort, but when the timbers were put together the boats had to be brought downstairs, and a Huron convert spread a terrifying report of a second deluge for which the white men were preparing a second Noah's Ark. Mohawk warriors at once scented an attempt to escape when the ice broke up in spring, and placed their braves in ambush along the portages. Also they sent a deputation to see if that story of the boats were true. Forewarned by Radisson, the whites built a floor over the boats, heaping canoes above the floor, and invited the Mohawk spies in. The Mohawks smiled grimly and were reassured. Canoes would be ripped into shingles if they ran the ice jam in spring. The Iroquois felt doubly certain of their victims, but Radisson, free to go among the warriors as one of themselves, learned that they were plotting to murder half the colony and hold the other half as hostages for the safety of the twelve Indians in the dungeon at Quebec. The whites could delay no longer. Something must be done. But what? Radisson, knowing the Indian customs, proposed a way out. No normally built savage could refuse an invitation to a scumptious feast. According to Indian custom, no feaster dare leave uneaten food on his plate. Waste to the Indian is crime. In the words of the Scottish proverb, better burst than waste, and all Indians have implicit faith in dreams. Radisson dreamed, so he told the Indians, that the white men were to give them a marvelous banquet no sooner dreamed than done. The Iroquois probably thought it a chance to obtain possession inside the fort, but the whites had taken good care to set the banquet between inner and outer walls. Such a repast no savage had ever enjoyed in the memory of the race. All the ambushed spies flocked in from the portages. The painted warriors washed off their grease, donned their best buttskin, and rallied to the banquet as to battle. All the stock but one solitary pig, a few chickens and dogs, had been slaughtered for the kettle. Such an odor of luscious meat steamed up from the fort for days as whetted the warriors' hunger to the appetite of ravenous wolves. Finally one night the trumpets blew a blare that almost burst eardrums. Fife shrilled, and the rub-a-dub-dub of -dub dozen drums set the air in a tremor. A great fire had been kindled between the inner and outer walls that set shadows dancing 
in the forest. Then the gates were thrown open, and in trooped the feasters, all the French acting as waiters. The whites carried in the kettles, kettles of wild fowl, kettles of oxen, kettles of dogs, kettles of porridge and potatoes and corn and what not. That is it. What not? Were the kettles drugged? Who knows? The feasters ate till their eyes were rolling lugubriously, and still the kettles came round. The Indians ate till they were torpid as swollen corpses, and still came the white men with more kettles, while the mischievous French lad, Radisson, danced a mad jig, shouting, yelling, eat, eat, beat the drum, awake, awake, cheer up, eat, eat. By midnight every soul of the feast had tumbled over sound asleep, and at the rear gates were the French, stepping noiselessly, speaking in whispers, launching their boats loaded with provisions and ammunition. The soldiers were for going back and butchering every warrior, but the Jesuits forbade such treachery. Then Radisson, light-spirited as if the refugees had been setting out on a holiday, perpetuated yet a last trick on the warriors. To the bell-rope of the main gate he fastened a pig, so when the Indians would pull the rope for admission they would hear the tramp of a sentry inside. Then he stuffed effigies of men on guard round the windows of the fort. It was a pitchy, sleety night, the river roaring with the loose ice of spring flood, the forest noisy with the boisterous march wind. Out on the maelstrom of ice and flood launched the fifty-three colonists, March twentieth, 1658. By April they were safe inside the walls of Quebec, and chance hunters brought word that what with sleep and the measured tramp-tramp of the pig and the baying of the dogs and the clucking of the chickens inside the fort, the escape of the whites had not been discovered for a week. The Indians thought the whites had gone into retreat for especially long prayers. Then a warrior climbed the inner palisades, and rage knew no bounds. The fort was looted and burnt to the ground. Peltry traffic was the life of New France. Without it, the colony would have perished, and now the rupture of peace with the Iroquois cut off that traffic. To the Iroquois land south of the St. Lawrence, the French dared not go, and the land of the Hurons was a devastated wilderness. The boats that came out to New France were compelled to return without a single peltry, but there still remained the unknown land of the Algonquin northwest and beyond the Great Lakes. Year after year French adventurers essayed the exploration of that land. In 1634 Jean Nicolet, one of Champlain's wood-runners, had gone westward as far as Green Bay and coasted the shores of Lake Michigan. Jesuits, where they practiced on Lake Superior, had been told of a vast land beyond the sweet water seas, Great Lakes, a land where wandered tribes of warriors powerful as the Iroquois. Yearly, when the Algonquins came down the Ottawa to trade, Jesuits and young French adventurers accompanied the canoes back up the Ottawa, hoping to reach the unknown land which rumor said was bounded only by the western sea. However, the priests went no farther than Lake Nipsing, 
but two nameless French wood runners came back from Green Bay in August of 1656 with marvelous tales of wandering hunters to the north called Christine's trees, who passed the winter hunting buffalo on a land bare of trees, the prairie, and the summer fishing on the shores of the North Sea, Hudson's Bay. They told also of fierce tribes south of the Christines, the Sioux, who traded with the Indians of the Spanish settlements in Mexico. All New France became fired by these reports. When Radisson returned from Onondaga in April of 1659, he found his brother-in-law, Short Gossier, just back from Nipsing, where he had been serving the Jesuits with more tales of this marvelous undiscovered land. The two kinsmen decided to go back with the Algonquins that very year, for, confessed Radisson in his journal, I long to see myself again in a boat. Thirty other Frenchmen and two Jesuits had assembled in Montreal to join the Algonquins. More than sixty canoes set out from Montreal in June. The one hundred and forty Algonquins, well supplied, with firearms to defend themselves from marsuiting Iroquois. Numbers begot courage, courage carelessness, and before the fleet had reached the Chaudiere Falls at the modern city of Ottawa, the canoes had spread far apart in utter forgetfulness of danger. Not twenty were within calling distance when an Indian prophet or wandering medicine man ran down to the shore, throwing his blanket and hatchet aside as a signal of peace, and shouting out warning of Iroquois warriors ambushed farther up the river. Drunk with the new sense of power from the possession of French firearms, perhaps drunk too with French brandy obtained at Montreal, the Algonquins paused to take the strange captive on board and returned thanks for the friendly warning by calling their benefactor a coward and dog and hen. At the same time they took the precaution of sleeping in midstream with their canoes abreast and tied to waterlogged trees. A dull roar through the night mist foretold they were nearing the great Chaudiere Falls, and at first street of day-dawn there was a rush to land and cross the long portage before the mist lifted and exposed them to the hostilities. End of section 11 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.